Let us pray. You speak to us, Lord, with tongues of wisdom. Let your Holy Spirit now open us to hear with greater clarity the teachings of today, that we may hold dear and yet new ways what it is you will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Hear now God's word to us. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever I read this passage, I now am immediately reminded of a book that I discovered a number of years ago by preacher and uh, seminary president Martin Copenhaver called Jesus is the Question. Have you ever noticed how often it seems that Jesus is asking questions? If you grew up in the church, you probably heard the overused cliche, Jesus is the answer. But actually, when you start looking at the Gospels, more often than not, Jesus is actually asking a question. According to the Gospels, Jesus asks 307 different questions. He's asked only 183 questions. And of those, he directly answers At most, eight. Jesus is 40 times more likely to ask a question than he is to give a direct answer. From the beginning to the end, Jesus is constantly asking questions. The first time he speaks in Luke's gospel is after his parents bring him to the temple and he gets left behind. When they find him, it says he's sitting with the elders, listening and asking questions. And his response to his parents is, 
why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? And at the end of both Mark and Matthew's Gospels, we know that Jesus' final words on the cross were a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even the resurrected Christ continues asking questions. What are you talking about as you walk along? Do you have anything here to eat? Do you love me? Questions, as many of us know, have different functions. They elicit information or inspire people to discover something new, to unearth new knowledge. Other questions are meant to persuade, as in a courtroom when lawyers ask questions of a witness in such a way that those questions actually form an argument, and ultimately the chain of questions persuades the jury. Sometimes questions are simply to stimulate thought, to spark curiosity. And questions also forge intimacy and build closeness, as when meeting a new friend or going on a date. But Jesus' questions also have the uncanny ability to unsettle and disarm and challenge. And that is the case with the questions he asks in our passage today. Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? For what will it profit them to gain the world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? The first two questions in particular appear on the surface to be simple, and yet oftentimes the simplest questions are also the hardest ones to answer. Now, by this point in Mark's gospel, we've reached the very center of his telling of the story. We're halfway there. The disciples have already traveled many miles with Jesus. They've seen him preach, seen the lame walk and the blind see, and they've witnessed Jesus challenging the religious and uh, societal authorities of the day. The whole first half of the gospel has been leading up to this simple yet unsettling question. And after all this, you'd think that the disciples would know the answers to Jesus' question. At least at first, they do seem to have a lot of answers for the first question. Who do people say that I am? Some people say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. And to this day, this question is an easy one to answer. And we have lots of theological as well as secular answers. Karl Rahner referred to Jesus as a perfected human person. John A.T. Robinson called him the human face of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to Jesus as the man for others. Many Latinx theologians will refer to Jesus as the great liberator. Jürgen Moltmann simply referred to Jesus as the, as the crucified God. Bruce Barton, an executive businessman and congressman from the 1930s, 
called Jesus the greatest salesman who ever lived. English poet Swinburne simply said, the pale Galilean who has caused the world to grow gray from his breath. Or in the words of a four-year-old, Jesus is God's best friend. The first question is also easy to answer because it can be answered without offending anyone. It doesn't ask for commitment of any kind. Who do people say Jesus is can be asked in public schools without fear of jeopardizing separation of church and state. And students can safely answer with a historical or sociological response. But then we get to this second question. Only one word has changed, yet suddenly it's as if the disciples as a group cannot give voice to such a large truth. This question is difficult because the answer is found so terribly close, as close as one's own heart. And no one can answer such a question for anyone else. The answer cannot be found in the words of others or in the thousands of books about Jesus. There is no escape into the comforts of objectivity with this question, because this question demands not so much the insight of your mind as much as the allegiance of your life. And so this question makes us hesitate, not because we doubt the answers we give will be true, but because having spoken the truth, we can no longer ignore its implications for our lives. Yet any who would follow Jesus must eventually answer this question for themselves. Some people, C.S. Lewis being a famous one, contend that there are really only two possible answers to this question. Either Jesus is Lord and the Son of God, or else he is a madman. And while we normally prefer these true-false, black-and-white, either-or options, I suspect that this absolute either-or answer is uncomfortable for some of us. When faced for the need for decision, we are tempted to ask, well, don't you have any essay questions? We want to be able to qualify our answers. We want to be able to say yes, but on the other hand, when it comes to matters of faith, for some of us, the language of decision is too confining to reflect the ambiguities of experience. This is often the case for those of us born and raised in the church, especially, I would say, reformed traditions, in which the concept of a one-time decision to turn your life over to Christ is mostly or completely foreign to us. We'd rather substitute words like pilgrimage, or spiritual journey, things that emphasize the evolutionary growth in our understanding of God 
and our relationship with Jesus. And especially in a culture that is increasingly secularized, rather than arrive at a decision, we are perpetually en route. We may not be ready to decide or ready to set our foot down, but we are definitely willing to grow. Unfortunately, too many Christian leaders and interpreters of the Christian religion tend to emphasize the role of either decision or growth to the virtual exclusion of the other. Those of us in the decision category tend to be more concerned with that particular moment of conversion and commitment and often dismiss talk about growth and pilgrimage as vague and wishy-washy. Meanwhile, those of us who are more focused on growth emphasize the slow, uneven process of faith that is never quite complete and often put so much emphasis on the slow growth of faith that we run the danger of never putting forth the question, who do you say I am? We can be so concerned about distinguishing ourselves from those so-called born-again Christians that we simply get, never get around to responding to the question, either because we view a once-and-done decision as a distant possibility, or because we reject the notion entirely as being too simplistic to reflect the vagaries and subtleties of our experience. What is lost in these either-or distinctions is that it poses a false choice. Both decision and growth have a place in relationships, and especially in our relationship with Jesus. Think about a romantic relationship. In romantic relationships, there's a place for the slow flowering of love, but there's also a place for the decision to marry. We may not be able to decide to love someone, but we can decide to commit ourselves to the one we have begun to love. Further, we may not find that our commitment to another allows, or we may find that our commitment to another actually allows us to increase in our love for that person, as nothing else could. I've also seen this in my personal decisions over time to tithe to the church. We're told only give with a willing spirit. But for me, that willingness and desire to give didn't fully blossom until the decision to give was already made. There will always be reasons why now is not a good time to give to the ministry of the church. But I've found that the more I give, the more I grow in my experience of God's provision, and my desire to give then increases. Growth and decision are not unrelated. And it is often in living out the implications of our commitment to Jesus that our faith in him can really ripen and flourish. So who do you say that I am? There is so much more to go into with this question and the answer that Peter gives and 
the response of Jesus, but that would be an entirely additional sermon. I think the point for us today is that there is no one right answer to that question, though there are probably some wrong answers. But all of the true answers do have some real consequences in our lives. Is Jesus a teacher? What would it mean to live as his student? Is Jesus the one who makes peace possible in the world? How can we live into that peace? Is Jesus a man arrested and put to death by the state? What does following him mean for us Americans who have the highest incarceration rate in any, of any country in the world? Is Jesus the one who says, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me? What does following him mean then for how we treat those on the margins of society? Is Jesus a poor, brown-skinned, Middle Eastern, first-century Jew? What does following him mean then for our nation where racism and anti-Semitism is still prevalent? Who do you say that Jesus is? This passage reminds us that Contrary to how Jesus is often portrayed, he does not offer us spiritual tips. He doesn't give us a neat list of 10 ways we can be closer to God. He does not provide easy answers. Instead, he asks hard questions. Easy answers would give us a sense of finality and hubris. But by entertaining the hard, unsettling questions, God has a chance to change us from the inside out. Information is not the goal in Jesus's questions. Transformation is. So once again, who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is asking each and every one of you that question and inviting you to answer him, not only with your mind and your heart and your words, but with your everyday actions. In actions like I saw among so many of you yesterday at Day on the Lawn. In actions like serving at one of our local mission partners giving of your finances to the ministry of the church, participating in Bible studies, connecting with Jesus in prayer and personal study, extending hospitality to someone in the church you don't know, praising God in worship. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once offered this famous advice to a young poet. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing, live your way into the answer. 
So let us do as the Apostle Paul would probably exhort each of us to do and take our everyday, ordinary lives, our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering and as an answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? May it be so. Amen.